You may recall that three weeks ago I introduced a new sermon series called Living on Purpose. Uh, we began that series and then the pandemic really hit and we haven't been able to assemble since. But I want to return to that series today. Now the whole point of this series is for us to investigate God's purpose for our lives. Why am I here? That's a question many of us have a tendency to ask from time to time. And our goal is to go to the Bible to discover exactly why we are here, why God created us. In today's lesson, we're going to find out that we were intended for his image. That will be our, our focus today as we journey through this study. We were intended for God's image. There was a, there's a story I want to tell as we get started. There was a middle-aged woman who went to the hospital after suffering a heart attack. And she uh, thought her time was up. She thought she was at the end of her life. And so during a time of prayer, she asked God, Is it my time? And the Lord responded, and he said, no, it's not your time. You've still got 43 years and eight more months and 10 more days before you die. And she thought to herself, after hearing this, she thought to herself, I've got a whole, <coughs> excuse me, I've got a whole second life to live. So you know what I ought to do? I ought to fix myself up. And so while she was in the hospital, after she recovered from that heart attack, she scheduled a tummy tuck, she scheduled liposuction, she scheduled a facelift and any other form of plastic surgery that she could get. And then shortly thereafter, she was released from the hospital and she was crossing the street and she was struck by a car and died. When she arrived at the gates of heaven, she asked the Lord, Lord, I thought you said I had 40 something more years to live. Why didn't you protect me? And the Lord said, I didn't recognize you. You know, that was intended to be a joke. I have no idea if that landed or not because I can't get any feedback. But my point is this, that sometimes it's hard to recognize who somebody is. Other times it is not, but sometimes it's very difficult to recognize somebody. Now you can recognize a college football fan when the season rolls around by the clothes they wear or by the, the sayings that come out of their mouth. And you can recognize somebody's political leanings simply by going to their Facebook page or any other social media page where they have this tendency to post things related to their agenda. There are ways we can identify who somebody is. Have you ever been introduced to someone that you didn't know well, but, but they knew your parents well, and they said something like, you must be so-and-so's child because you look just like him or her. You see, we, we understand how to recognize each other when it comes to our fandom or when it comes to our, our politics or, or even when it comes to our family relationships, but sometimes it can be hard to identify someone. Today, I, I want us to ask ourselves, do people quickly recognize that we are God's people when they see us? See, the way you can tell if somebody belongs to God is by seeing if he or she possesses a, a family resemblance to God. Here's what I mean. God has always intended that his children bear his image. 
or more specifically, he has always intended that his children bear the image of his son. Look at what Paul said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Paul said, Those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. See, living on purpose means living in such a way Living on purpose means living in such a way that people see Jesus when they look at us. And that means that we cannot become content with salvation. Now, before you get all worried about where I'm going with this, let me explain what I'm talking about. We cannot become content with salvation. We want everyone to receive salvation, but we cannot be content with that as the final step. In other words, it's not enough for us to be concerned only about helping a person receive salvation. We must be equally concerned about helping a person become a mature disciple. Jesus indicated that we have to be concerned about both receiving salvation and pursuing maturation when he gave the Great Commission. Look at this with me in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, the Great Commission is a call to make disciples. But the process of making disciples is twofold in that passage. It entails baptizing them and teaching them. The baptizing instruction focuses on how one receives salvation and thereby initiates his or her life as a disciple. The teaching instruction focuses on how one gains additional knowledge about God's will and therefore matures as a disciple. Thus, the baptizing instruction focuses on how one becomes a disciple, while the teaching instruction focuses on how one grows as a disciple. And that means that Jesus expects us to not just lead people to salvation, but to also lead people to maturation. So we cannot become content with salvation, with a salvation mission only. We must also participate in the maturation process. But not only can we, should we not be content with salvation, we cannot become content with stagnation either. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, after Paul instructed us to speak the truth in love, he said we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Another translation says it this way, we are to be growing in every way more and more like Christ. That's our purpose. And the point is that God wants all of us to mature. God wants all of us to learn. God wants all of us to grow. God wants all of us to resemble his son. Therefore, we cannot be content unless we see ourselves increasingly resembling the image of Christ. But sadly, many Christians are content with stagnancy. Too many 
followers think it is acceptable in God's eyes for them to stop growing, to stop improving, to stop transforming. And the thing is that in most areas of our lives where transformation is the objective, we get frustrated if we don't see it. Think about it. If you wanted to get into shape, if you were really interested and concerned about your physical health, so you hired a professional trainer and you followed the workout regimen that he, gave, he or she gave you, and you started a diet that a nutritionist recommended, and you did these things for a couple of months, but you saw no change in your life, wouldn't you get frustrated? Because you want to see transformation. Or let's say you hired a contractor to build you a house and you drive out to that lot day after day for months and you see nothing started. No groundwork, no foundation, no plumbing, nothing. You would get frustrated because you expect to see some transformation. And the reality is that we don't hold ourselves spiritually to that standard sometimes. Because there are people who had hot tempers when they became Christians, and they still have hot tempers today. And there are people who used vulgar language before they became a, a Christian, and yet they still use vulgar language today. And there are people who got drunk every weekend before they became a Christian, and they still go out drinking today. And there are people who engaged in sexual immorality before they were a Christian, and they still engage in sexual immorality today. And such people don't seem particularly bothered by the lack of transformation in their life. And I think the reason there's a lack of transformation is because we, we think there's a lack of facilitation. What I mean is that we find transformation to be too difficult on our own. And so we quickly quit pursuing transformation because we don't see how it can get any easier. We don't see how God can or will facilitate transformation in our lives. But we need to realize that as one preacher said, whatever God intends, God enables. So with the remainder of our time this morning, I want to show you three gifts God has given to help us become who he intends for us to be. Three gifts God gives us to help us transform into the image of his son. Now the first of these gifts is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I know using the term gift and Holy Spirit in the same sentence makes some of us incredibly uncomfortable. But the truth is that we were gifted with the Holy Spirit. Just look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. After Peter instructed his audience in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, he indicated that there are two things one receives upon making that decision. First, one receives forgiveness of sins. And second, one receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
So the Holy Spirit is a gift we receive in conjunction with the forgiveness of sins when we, were, when we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But what is that gift? Time will not allow us to conduct a, a thorough and detailed study of the Holy Spirit today. But I want you to notice some things that are said about the, the, the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Now Romans chapter 8 verse 29 was the passage we read at the outset of this lesson. The passage that tells us that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. But now I want you to go to Romans chapter 8 and notice some things Paul says specifically about the Spirit. You have to remember that at the outset of Romans chapter 8, Paul began addressing some of the benefits of being in Christ. You can see him start that in verse 1. But then if you drop down to verse 9, in particular, you'll notice that Paul indicated that if you are in Christ, then the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then in verse 11, he indicated that the reason the Spirit of God dwells in you is to give life to your mortal bodies. And then if you skip a little bit further down to verse 13 through 14, you'll see that Paul implied that the indwelling Spirit will lead you to put to death the deeds of the body. Now, that's a quick overview of a few things Paul says about the Spirit here in Romans chapter 8. But before us to really kind of grasp what's going on, we need to back up to chapter 7. Go back to Romans chapter 7 and look at verse 15 through 20. Because here, Paul acknowledged man's inability to transform on his own power. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15 and going through verse 20, here's what Paul says. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, that's a fascinating passage written by, the, written by Paul. And it can get confusing because he's talking about what he wants to do and what he doesn't want to do and that sort of thing. But Paul is saying that on his own, he does not have enough willpower or strength to consistently do what he knows is right. And as a result, he ends up doing what he knows is wrong. And notice that Paul says he continuously loses this battle because sin dwells within him. Now, that's not Paul advocating the concept of original sin. And that's not Paul saying that, that sin is inherited. That's Paul saying that he is weak. And this weakness, this Failure tormented Paul to the point that in verse 24 of Romans chapter 7, he cried out for help. He said, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is Jesus. But not just because Jesus conquered sin. It's also because Jesus promised to send a helper. Back in John chapter 14 and verse 15, Jesus told the apostles, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Now, that's always been God's expectation for his people, that we keep his commandments. And when you look at what Paul's writing there in Romans chapter 7, he's saying that when he wants to keep the commandments, he can't because he's too weak. But in John chapter 14, after Jesus reminded us that the expectation is for us to keep his commandments, he followed that up in the very next verse by saying this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit was specifically sent to help disciples keep Christ's commands because we, like Paul, fell miserably at obeying the rules on our own. I mean, just look at society today and how many people can't follow the rules about this whole quarantine and social distancing situation. We fell miserably at keeping the rules. And John chapter 14 indicates that one reason the Holy Spirit was sent was to aid us in that. Now, some of the Spirit's participation in helping us keep the rules is through the Word that the Holy Spirit helped bring into existence. And in the first century, we can see how some of the Spirit's assistance was involved in, in the miraculous abilities that, that those had during that age. So I can't speak to all the ways that the Holy Spirit may help us in this, but here's what I understand. I understand our dilemma. And our dilemma is that we cannot transform into the image of Christ through rule-keeping and willpower that never works because you cannot fix an internal problem with an external solution. In order to become Christ-like, you have to transform from the inside out. And Scripture indicates that such transformation is a work of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. That seems to be the point of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, which says, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Transformation happens to all of us who are beholding the glory of the Lord. This is a callback to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verses 34 through 35. And Moses would, before entering... Excuse me, Moses would enter the tabernacle and appear before the Lord to speak with him. And, and after being in the presence of the Lord, he would emerge with a transformed countenance that Scripture said manifested itself as a shining face. And just as Moses was transformed by being in the presence of God, we are being transformed. But look at the last part of this verse and notice who is responsible for our transformation. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This transformation is credited not to the Lord, who is the Father, or to the Lord, who is the Son, but to the Lord, who is the Spirit, because it is the, because it is the Spirit who dwells in us to give life to our mortal bodies by putting to death the deeds of the body, as Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 14 said. And by producing the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
as Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23 says. See, the Lord sent to us one gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in this lesson, I can't go into the depths of everything that entails. But it does seem to indicate in Scripture that the Spirit is involved in our transformation. But that's not the only gift that has been sent to us. Another gift that God has given us is the gift of a spiritual family. You know, nothing can grow Christ-like on its own. One preacher said, if you want to become more like Jesus, then you must also belong to a spiritual family. And, and there's two very important reasons why. One is because a spiritual family will encourage you to succeed. In the New Testament, Christians are frequently instructed to encourage each other. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, we're instructed to encourage one another daily. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25, we're instructed to not neglect to meet together, but to encourage one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11, we're instructed to encourage one another and build one another up. I want you to think. Why are Christians so frequently reminded of the need to encourage one another? I think it's because God knows how easy it is for us to lose motivation, for us to get distracted, and for us to become discouraged. Think about the context of each of those encouragement instructions we just read. When the author of Hebrews instructed us to encourage one another daily in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, he immediately explained why in the remainder of the verse so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Thus, encouragement is necessary to prevent the hardening of our hearts. And then the author of Hebrews instructed us in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 to not neglect to meet together, but to encourage one another. And when he wrote that, he preceded it by saying in verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So encouragement is necessary not only to prevent the hardening of our hearts, but it's also necessary to motivate one another toward godly actions, toward right living. And then when Paul instructed us to encourage one another and build one another up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11, he was in the midst of discussing death and the second coming. And he was indicating to his readers that encouragement is necessary to comfort one another in times of uncertainty. So we need a spiritual family to encourage us so that we don't lose our sensitivity to sin and so that we, we will be motivated to do what's right spiritually and so that we will find comfort in times of distress. But a spiritual family not only will encourage us to succeed, a spiritual family will also admonish us when we err. In the New Testament, Christians are instructed to admonish one another. Paul told the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 15, verse 14, he said, I am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. And then in, in, to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 14, Paul said, Paul instructed rather, 
that church to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with everyone. Now, I want you to think, what is admonishment? To admonish someone spiritually is to warn them, to advise them, or to urge them to consider something that they're forgetting. And that something they're forgetting is God's expectations and God's will. And I think that's Paul's ultimate point in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28 when he said that as Christians we are warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You see, admonishment is intentional for maturation. The ultimate goal of admonishment is to help one another grow, help one another mature, help one another transform into the image of Christ. However, there are times when admonishment may need to include something more than just a warning and something more than just a, a advice. It may necessitate corrective action. You can see corrective action take place throughout the New Testament. When Priscilla and Aquila worked with Apollos to complete his understanding of the way of God in Acts chapter 18, that was corrective action. That was admonishment. When Peter condemned Simon the sorcerer regarding his sinful request in Acts chapter 8, that was corrective action. That was admonishment. And when Paul called out Peter for behaving hypocritically in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2, that was corrective action. That was admonishment. These examples show us that transformation sometimes necessitates family intervention. And James presents such corrective action, such intervention, as a heroic endeavor. In James chapter 5, verse 19 through 20, he said, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, think about it. We often avoid admonishing or correcting others because we're afraid of how they might react or because we believe it's none of our business. Or because we fear harming our relationship with the other person. But such fears drastically pale in comparison to the ultimate goal of helping each other get to heaven. And sometimes such admonishment is exactly what we need from our spiritual family. You see, the second gift God gives us is the gift of a spiritual family who's going to encourage us, who's going to prod us along, and who's going to admonish us, who's going to correct us when we're erring. So we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of a spiritual family. And there is a third gift that we need to mention today. And that is the gift of tough circumstances. One preacher said that God cares about your character more than your comfort. And that some things are more important to God than a pain-free existence. I think that's the point being made in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. The verse that immediately precedes that statement about us being transformed into the image of Christ, predestined to be in the image of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we read this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we need to consider for a moment what that verse really says and does not say. What this verse does not say is that God will take all of life's problems away. 
This verse does not say that if you love God, then life is going to be easy. This verse does not say that you will have a, a pain-free existence as his follower. But this verse does say that God has a purpose. And his purpose is good. And if we allow him to, he will use all of our experiences to fulfill that purpose. So your tough circumstances don't have to have the last word. You can let God have the last word by allowing your circumstances to work in conjunction with his purpose. And what is that purpose? As, we, as we've noted throughout this lesson, that, that purpose is to make you look like Jesus. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's why he works all things for good, to transform us into the image of his Son. So God wants to take your hardships and your sufferings and your pain and your negative experiences and use them to make you look more like Jesus when you come out of the other side than you did when you began those circumstances. We must never forget that God is the potter and we are the clay, as Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 6 declared. And those difficult circumstances we face are the wheel and the water that he is using to mold us into his masterpiece. And that's the reason that James says we can count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. We can rejoice over difficult circumstances because God will use those difficult circumstances to transform us into the image of his son. So whether we're talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit or the gift of a spiritual family or the gift of tough circumstances, we're talking about things that God has given us to help us transform into the image of his son. I don't know how many of you will remember this show, if you grew up in the 80s like me, you might. This is the Bozo Show that was broadcast weekdays on WGN out of Chicago. And on the show, there was an occasional segment in which Bozo had a guest named Mr. Lion, who is also pictured here in the screen. Mr. Lion was an illustrator. He would appear on stage with a marker and paper mounted on an easel. And a child would be invited onto the stage from the audience and asked to do something to initiate a drawing. Sometimes the child would be asked to scribble on the paper. Sometimes the child would be asked his or her name, and that would be written on the paper. But no matter what, no matter what started on that piece of paper, Mr. Lyon would take the marker and convert the child's scribbling or the child's name into a picture. And the thing that stands out to me about that segment is that there wasn't a mess on that canvas that the artist couldn't utilize because he could see the bigger picture. And the Bible indicates that like the illustrator, God knows what he's doing, but God needs you to cooperate with him in order to complete the picture. He can give you the Holy Spirit as a gift, but you can grieve the Spirit and you can quench the Spirit. He can give you a spiritual family, but you can ignore them and distance yourself from them. He can give you life circumstances that have the potential to shape you, but you can let those circumstances make you bitter. See, the point is that, that God gives us the gifts that will help transform us, 
but we have to choose to access and use them for that purpose. And if we will partner with him in this process, then as Paul said in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Today, as we get back into this study of our purpose, we see that we were intended for his image, that God's intent is for us to be transformed into the image of his son. And he's equipped us to do that. Do you resemble his son today? If not, what needs to change? What transformation needs to happen? Maybe for some of you, that transformation has to start with a decision to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I know we're not all together physically, but I know I, one of the other ministers, one of the elders, can make time to meet you at our building to baptize you into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins like two others have already chosen to do during this time of isolation. If you need to be a, become a, a child of God today by doing that, please reach out to me or one of the elders or one of the ministers. It may be that you've made that decision, but you don't really look like the sun right now. You may have received salvation, but you have not pursued maturation, and you need to make that change. Maybe that you need to reach out to one of us so that we can pray with you, so that we can help you, so that we can study with you, and so that we can hold you accountable toward this path of maturation. Whatever your need is today, even though we can't have a physical invitation, we still invite you to make things right so that you are transforming into the image of his son that you are expected to become. We're part of that spiritual family that's here to help. So if you have any need to respond to today's invitation, please reach out 